And into the forest I go to lose my mind and find my soul. John Moore. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone who listened last week and is listening this week, uh, and those that have continued to do so uh, since we started our show. So this week's episode is probably going to be a little bit shorter. Um, I have traveled a little bit this weekend for a wedding. Um, I got back safe and okay, but I, uh, despite taking a nice nap, I am still very tired, and I do have stuff to do but to get ready for the week ahead. So I'm just going to go ahead and start this episode, and we'll try to get to um, we'll try to get to a decent stopping place. But this episode might be a little bit shorter than the last couple we've done. That being said, this week we're going to be focusing on the peoples living in Central and Western Africa at 8000 BC. Uh, This will probably take uh, two or three episodes. Um, Before we begin, though, there was a question I had that I wanted to answer kind of as best as I could. Um, I had a listener, uh, John ask if we knew how many humans were alive at this time and obviously you know he was a you know he knew like you know I'm sure most of you know that we don't obviously have an exact number but we do have some estimates and there are estimates that are based on a ton of different factors and then this includes things like measuring you know our modern impact on the environment and then working backwards from there you know just seeing how much things changed over a certain amount of time. Um, There's even calculations involving the amount of energy a human body emits going about it this day versus like the amount it emits resting. And there's like a nature article that I read from like it's October, 2020. Um, The name on that, uh, it was uh, Savitsky at all. Savitsky's the, the main byline. Uh, It included, like, tons of graphs measuring a lot of different factors, Um, like mining, logging, ice water cores, all kinds of stuff. Um, And I'm not great at math, so I'm not going to go into the specifics about about that. Um, But I recommend you read that article if you're interested. Um, That said, from that article and a couple of other estimates... um, I think it's safe to say that there were around 5 million people or so by around 8,200, 8,100 BCE worldwide. So, you know, uh, probably 5.1, 5.2, something along those lines when we get to the 8,000 BC mark. And obviously that's going to continue to rise um, as we get further down this timeline. Uh, 6,000 BC, who knows? I'd have to dive a little bit deeper but um yeah for now though um we're going to focus on uh the portion of the five million uh from the area that we talked about at the start so to refresh on them from the episode at 10,000 BCE um they diverged uh from each other around 80,000 years ago uh some of those peoples in West Africa clustered around the Congo River Basin, and others headed to the west and the north toward, you know, the Niger River systems and the savannas and the Sahel 
and some even further north than that. Um, but uh, we're going to start with the peoples of Central Africa and like the Congo River Basin. Uh, these are the ancestors of the modern pygmy peoples. Now, I do want to be clear that the term pygmy among these peoples is not liked and is you know, rightly considered to be a term that is or has been used as a pejorative. And each of these groups would like to be referred to as their own tribal ethnonym, the name they refer to themselves as. Um, unfortunately, there isn't another catch-all term that has been developed for this, which I consider really surprising considering, you know, certain academic disciplines desire, you know, for policing speech and language. Um, but when I get to the point that these ethnonyms are identifiable, I will begin to use them uh, for whatever groups we're talking about. In the meantime, I am going to use this blanket term. It is not meant as an insult in the context that I'm using in. It's just meant to identify them as the ancestors of several groups of people that have a slightly smaller physical stature than the average uh, human um, in most other human groups, I should say. Now, unfortunately, we don't know the exact reason for their stature or when it came prevalent among them, um, but it is, it is a, probably a combination of um, environmental factors and a period of isolation. Um, yeah, they, the, that is not, you know, to say that they were nearly as isolated as the Khoisan groups in the south, um, but, uh, for a number of reasons we're going to dive into later, I think it is safe to say that their shorter frames have become the norm for them at this time frame, at 8,000 BCE. Um, now I did make a mistake about these peoples in my prior episode at the 10,000 BC mark. I can find them to a much smaller geographic area than they probably actually roamed. Um, this is because I, I forgot to properly convert time between thousands of years ago and our current calendar, so I'm going to try and clear that stuff up now. And uh, I briefly talked about the split between Eastern and Western uh, pygmies uh, in Africa. Uh, that split is not, uh, that the split I was referring to actually happens later. Um, there is an east-west split between these groups, but it actually happened a little bit earlier. Um, so it's not the same east-west split that we see in the modern groups. Um, that modern division is of the eastern group's descendants. So uh, there is another <laughs> there's another east-west split here. Uh, so for now, just think of the eastern groups. They make their homes and ranges in the rainforests around the Congo River and all of its tributaries in the area, basically the entire Congo watershed. They're hunting, they're gathering, they're fishing. Uh, they would probably be at home in swamps and wetlands of like the outer areas of wet as well. Um, they would, you know, they were the ones, I think we found those early um, 
fish hooks for. Some of the earliest fish hooks kind of are in this general region where they caught those huge catfish. So uh, they've been fishing for quite a while in the rivers. Um, their modern borders would cover uh, basically from the north of modern Angola to the borderlands of like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Uganda, Burundi, Tanzania, and along the rivers in the, I think it's the Central African Republic. Uh, and it would go to the coast of Gabon and Cameroon in kind of the west. Um, the western groups of pygmies were more at home on like the plains and the savanna and the Sahel. Uh, and they would be in the borderlands of what is now uh, the Sudans, North Sudan, South Sudan, uh, Chad, uh, the Central African Republic again, Cameroon, Nigeria, Niger, and possibly even further west into you know, parts of Mali. Now, there is some overlap in the tools between the eastern and western groups, but obviously living on the drier plains, uh, the Western group has less need for things like fish hooks and lines. Uh, they do have a little bit more variety, though, of the types of stone that they have access to. Uh, they're closer to mountain and hills, and they would, you know, occasionally like rest there. And from that, they were able to get materials like uh, quartz or sandstone that would have been a lot harder for the Eastern groups to obtain. Um, now, the eastern groups were also more isolated than the western groups, at least at this time period. Um, they would have shared several features with other hunter-gatherer groups and each other. Those, of course, being uh, small band sizes. Again, most of the year, they would be in groups you know, as small as 10 up to the groups of 50. Uh, then they would band together in the winter before breaking apart again. Um, I also sp expect that they shared the egalitarian kind of spirit or ethos that the San and Koi had. Now, today's descendants of the Eastern Pygmy groups, despite adopting other aspects of their kind of incoming neighbors, still have equal say between men and women. Uh, they will make decisions that affect the group at kind of campfire councils. Um, now, that is not to say that it is entirely equal, though, uh, at least when it comes to how marriages and alliances between groups are formed. They place a higher emphasis on uh, patrilineal descent, and in most situations, the woman will move into her husband's band rather than vice versa, like almost all the time. Although, uh, ideally, their marriages happen with one man exchanging his sister for her future husband's sister. That way, the group doesn't lose population, and neither group loses population, and it doubles the links between these groups. Um, now, a reciprocal exchange isn't always possible, depending on uh, population dynamics, though. Um, especially in the modern times, that's much rarer these days. Um, though I will say, even women marrying into groups can be and do take part in decision making. They're not ostracized, you know, they're not permitted or they're not forbidden from taking part in, you know, discussions. They are considered part of the family. Um, leadership and respect come from skill in service, uh, in the services you provide to the group. 
Um, men who are better hunters have more respect and gain leadership on hunts and combat. They have no hereditary rulers, unlike the San, that occasionally have hereditary chiefs. But uh, basically any command and leadership one gets is entirely earned. Now, one difference between the San and these groups is that they do not participate in bride service like some San do. Um, but, like the San, they also do not have either a bride or groom dowry. Uh, there are also some general similarities in what it takes to be eligible for marriage. Young men do have to complete a solo hunt for an antelope or some similar type of animal. Um, young women when they reach their first menstruation are kind of isolated in separate huts and tents and they're not allowed to walk on the ground without being carried or wearing footwear to keep um, her feet clean. This is kind of like a meant to be a, a cleansing ritual and be part of a, a, a larger ritual to make sure that the girl grows into you know a healthy well-fed woman. Now the reason I'm including those facts, despite the you know despite that we get that information from you know much later descendants of these groups, um, because of the similarities to the San, who the Eastern Pygmies and the San being very isolated from each other, and the fact that they have that these you know similar rituals, it tells me that that's kind of at least more common among the hunter-gatherers of Africa and possibly and probably outside of Africa as well. This is something that the Pygmies have kept um, even after, you know, they, you know, uh, mingle and interact with other outsider groups uh, that, come, that come along later. Um, so, yes, this egalitarianism is probably something that just it, it arose naturally. It makes sense because, again, you you're related to everyone. You're not gonna, you know, at least in most situations, you're not gonna, you know, disrespect your mother or your sisters or your brothers. Like you're you're generally gonna try to all work together for each other. And uh, the things with demographics. So we talked about why hunter gatherers have smaller sizes. That probably applies too. Uh, although in the case of the pygmies living in the Congo, that very much might be also a environmental struggle. While the Congo has a ton of resources in terms of game and fish and wildlife and uh, forageable food, it is also a much more dangerous environment. Um, just, and you know, that might be part of the reason that the pygmy have evolved to smaller. It, it makes it easier to survive in that environment. Uh, at least that's one of the theories, but, you know, who knows. Uh, it, it's, at least it's still a mystery for now. Uh, I know that there are plenty of theories and that they are still doing genetic testing on some of these groups. Um, and maybe we'll have an answer one day, like uh, or at least a, a more uh, front-facing reason for why they have this shorter stature. Uh, or at least like, like kind of the primary reason they're shorter. I'm sure it's actually a number of factors, but obviously we don't know for sure. Now the Eastern groups, uh, they also have uh, an, uh, their, um, their own kind of religious traditions that are separate from uh, the San and the Khoi. Um, of course, 
you know, them living in the Congo regions. Um, forest is, uh, the, the forest is very important to uh, these peoples. Uh, certain groups will refer to the forest as a mother or father. They have a lot of rituals um, that kind of, you know, wake the forest up. Uh, you know, if anything is bad is happening to them, they assume that the forest is uh, asleep or, you know, um, something along those lines. So um, they will, you know, they'll do things to kind of like raise a noise, a clatter, and try to just get the forest, up, you know, to wake up and protect them. Um, they have horns and trumpets and things like that where they, you know, attempt to kind of, um, bring the forest to life as it were. Now, uh, they, but in addition to, you know, obviously the forests, um, they do have like their own pantheon of gods and things like that. Um, and it should be noted that each of these groups, um, you know, they all have their own takes and spins on religions, but you know, just kind of keep in mind that this is just kind of a general outline and it basically involves uh information that is easier for me to find there are obviously certain groups that are more well documented than others but you know kind of take a take from this what you can um but they of course have a primary god uh Konovum or Konvom. Uh, he's like a he's a hunter god uh he will um uh he uses a bow made of two snakes and he will appear kind of as a rainbow uh he will send messages to people from uh, a chameleon that can uh can kind of change obviously his color and appear disappear as needed he's uh the chameleon is kind of like i guess the hermes of the um of the the um central african hunter-gatherers um he will also send um he will also send messages through gore who is a thunder god and also an elephant which is pretty pretty metal um uh one thing i did find in kind of like researching for this is that the chameleon um is not just in the um uh, pygmy mythology he also shows up in some western African folk myths and, and in that situation the chameleon is um, I think he's actually named and, and given some like some more I guess personality so this could be a very old myth it's something that could go very far back but um, we'll get to that when we get to the religions that evolve, involve that, uh, that character Another very important um, as, um, uh, deity in these religions is um, Arabadi, uh, and they're they're kind of a, a sky father figure. Um, some people associate him as the moon god, but there are some that's like, well, no, he's just in the sky, but he uses the moon as kind of like a. Uh, a totem or a assistant depending on how you view it and depending on which group is telling the story uh, but he's the one that creates humanity from clay um, 
the Pygmies, uh, interestingly enough, consider themselves to have been made from red clay. Their other neighbors uh, having been made from black clay. And of course, when white people show up, they say that white people were created from white clay. So they do uh, kind of have this, even in their old um, myths and legends, they do kind of show consider themselves different from their other neighbors. Um, and I talked about, I believe, how, um, how we were initially immortal, uh, and then, you know, when we got old, our Abedi would return us to youth. Uh, but there was, um, there was a myth about a toad and a woman's corpse dropping into a pit, and a woman couldn't be revived by our Abedi, so that's why the rest of humanity is fated to grow old and die, essentially. Uh, there is also, um, a god of forests, um, who's Tor, and he's kind of the, he's a thunder god, so again, kind of plays into that part of, like, making noise and drawing all this attention to kind of wake the forest up, uh, but again, he's kind of the god of all forests, where is the forest that these people live in is also its own entity, uh, the specific forest that they live in. So they'll kind of appeal to him to come to their forest and, you know, help them wake up their home. Uh, he's depicted a lot of cases as a leopard or something similar to that. Um, and he's the one that uh, the first pygmies got fire from. He, he, they stole it from him. And he kind of, he tried to chase him down, but he couldn't catch him. Um, so he's, in some, uh, some stories... He's the one that says that humans should die. That's kind of his punishment. Because when he he chased them down to retain fire, um, while he was gone, his mother died. And then, so that was the punishment for man. Again, there, there are different versions of these myths. They're not at all connected. Some are different from others. They're, they're very different uh, religious traditions. Or they've been separated so long it's hard to tell which is older. Uh, so just keep that in mind. These are very, you know, a lot, well, not quite a large number, especially these days. But they're, you know, they're very different uh, groups and traditions. So um, it's that's kind of why it is dangerous to kind of connect them all together. But again, at this time frame, there's really not a way to get into specific groups. Now that being said, this takes us to kind of the more, um, I guess, depressing part of the episode. Um, I've talked a lot about the Eastern Pygmies and like some of their surviving traditions and what separates them from uh, other human groups at this time. Um, now, unfortunately, the Western uh, Pygmies that I've kind of mentioned a few times um we don't know much about them um there's a reason for that and that is that uh, while they are living in the plains and the savannas they are much less isolated they do not have the natural barriers and defenses that the eastern pygmies do they are of course interacting with other human groups um, and these groups for a 
couple of reasons that we'll get into later. Um, eventually, we'll start to push the pygmies out and or assimilate them um, as time goes on. The um, And this was kind of something that people weren't too sure about. Were they you know, the same as the pygmies that are living in the forest? And have they just been like slowly pushed back from the plains and all that? But uh, I think from what they've gathered that there were there are a couple of different groups some were more assimilated and some were just probably driven back into the forests there is a type site known as Shumlaka uh, it's in modern-day Cameroon uh, they found a number of I think around 20 or so human skeletons um, and it you know it had a ton of other things they had um, a bunch of stone tools like almost I think it was like a million different like stone material that they were able to find uh, they even had some ceramic shards um, and radiocarbon dating you know they kind of um, they did you know they basically did everything they could to try to like time everything out because this is multiple layers this is something that's happening this place was uh occupied by humans somewhere between like three thousand years ago up until like the the 1600s ad um so um, the bone preservation from the earlier occupations is really poor they only had a little bit of plant remains and there have been no bones from that time period pound um, or at least no bone tools. I do think they had like some animal bones, but they weren't like specifically like worn down to be used as tools. And they also included um, things that were not human that had maybe stayed there. Things like gorillas and chimpanzees. Uh, sorry, chimpanzees. Um, it was. They also found evidence of habitation by types of um, ungulates, maybe giraffes, something like that. Um, so this is a site that you know was occupied for you know short periods of time for quite a while um but it wasn't something that was like occupied you know a couple hundred years and then they moved on this is something this is basically like a campsite um so this allows them to kind of get a snapshot from you know various time frames um and it's helpful that this is kind of like um it's located at a kind of a crossroads of a few different um, ecologies I think the term for that is ectone so you know it's it's not far from a river but it is close um, uh, but it's also close to kind of a dry plain but it's also got forests in other directions so there's a bunch of different places you can go from there it's like a it's a good place to kind of switch up where you're gonna live next i guess it's kind of maybe a time to or a place to kind of camp and get your feet uh and think about where you want to go um but from the the human remains that they found there they've kind of did uh dna testing and they were able to kind of you know say okay these earlier remains they're probably more closely related to these western um these western central african hunter-gatherer pygmies uh and then some of the later ones 
are they have a much different uh, genetic background. There were thoughts when this place was initially found that this was kind of like maybe going to be the the home for the first uh, Bantu peoples. Uh, this may have been the the hypothetical birthplace of the Bantu languages. Um, but I think they, you know, it's very possible that Bantu groups did live there. Um, but they are not, um, the oldest people that were living there. And the older groups show a lot more, um, pygmy ancestry in relations than the later groups. Because those later groups showed almost none. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is something that kind of lends, you know, lends credence to the fact that, yes, these pygmies are being forced out or, you know, um, killed or assimilated uh, as opposed to just, like, merging into the population or emerging from it. Um, in fact, uh, when we get there, um, there are going to be stories that these Western Africans have of um, meeting uh, smaller pygmy peoples and kind of um, when they when they arrive in areas and they'll show up in um, in mythologies and histories that these people record of themselves. I think uh, one group, yeah, the site is called Tulum, T E L E U M. Um, they kind of they were people who inhabited these kind of cave systems uh, for a time, and then they. Uh, vanished or they were driven out depending on whose story you're listening to and then the people kind of came in um, but it is not to say that you know they're all killed or um, you know driven off by the um, by the larger um, you know Northwest Africans that are moving into this area over time uh, there are situations and we'll see it again when we get to um, a later time frame for the Central and Eastern African uh, pygmies, uh, they kind of develop almost a symbiotic relationship where the um, more agricultural associated, like larger um, West Africans will kind of set up their places and then the pygmies will kind of move in and they will exchange goods from the forest for um, the agricultural byproducts and other items, uh, and they, they kind of develop like kind of a vassal, uh, vassal overlord type situation between the pygmies. And that's certainly something that's very possible that happened in Western Africa, but it happened so long ago, we really can't say for sure. Um, and there is evidence of just genetic mixing, although, Again, from what we can tell from the DNA sources that we've been able to acquire, uh, it does seem as if more female pygmy uh, DNA got passed on than male pygmy. Make of that what you will. Um, but, yeah, I think that's kind of a good place to stop. Um, this is one of those first times that we're getting to that we're not able to get information on a group that we have evidence of. The Western, uh, the Western pygmies... Again, they probably had a very similar social structure or lack thereof to the Eastern Pygmies with just those close-knit family groups coming to group decisions. Um, I would have liked to see what the differences were in their kind of hunting styles, uh, if any. I would have 
you know, I'd like to hear what was different about their religions. Um, when it comes to languages, we know that even though most of these groups speak a Bantu language, uh, at least in Central and Eastern Africa, uh, they, they do retain some of their pre, uh, pre-contact languages. Uh, I think around 30% of their words that they've been able to kind of guess uh, and reconstruct are from a language family that no longer exists. Uh, and this would be words that they would have had for very old activities. Things like hunting, gathering specific things in the forest, um, bee hunting, which is, of course, the process by which you know, they get honey from from um, uh, hives in the jungle. Uh, they are called bee hunters in their languages. Um, and this was, of course, before bees are tamed. Um, but yeah, so obviously I don't think you're going to run into too many bees on Central Africans like, or, or I'm sorry, on um, West Africa's plains and the Sahara and the Savannah. Um so what did they use, I guess, to kind of, you know, live? Because uh, the, the Central Africans, they have, they have rivers, they have uh, lakes. They're, they're probably much more um, adept fishers. Um, I wonder if maybe it's also possible that the Western African pygmies just didn't have as much resources and they weren't able to kind of adapt to the things that the Western Africans are bringing in from further north. Um, and that's something we'll get into. I think uh, this is a good point to stop this episode, though. I am starting it very tired. And I'm sure I've been rambling a little bit. But, um, yeah, so it, it's an interesting it's an interesting group, uh, and we're starting to see um, man's, I guess, uh, ability to kind of... Um, force his neighbors uh, to do things that they might not want to do. Uh, but again, we're going to get into that further. Um, when we get to the next episode, we're going to dive into some of the groups that are starting to form in that kind of further, furthest west and a little bit more north. Um, the Sahara is still greener at this point, so it is home to some groups. It has its own lakes and rivers still. Uh, and we'll talk about a few of those and those people and what they're doing and how they are going to start um, their own kind of agricultural revolution. Um, this is going to be kind of the genesis points for agriculture in, um, in Western Africa, Western and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, there's some other uh, things that I didn't know about when I started research with these people that I found extremely interesting. I didn't realize how old it was to this part of the world. But uh, yeah, uh, I hope you look forward to that episode. It will be out next week. Um, and yeah, I should have regular episodes up for the rest of the year, barring, of course, um, um, Probably Christmas. I might not have one out that Monday. It might be that Tuesday or Wednesday. But uh, yeah, I do plan on having um, yeah regular episodes for the rest of the year, probably up until that point. So, 
But yeah, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this one. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to let me know. I always enjoy getting that feedback. But um, yeah, I hope you uh, continue to listen. Uh, you can reach me uh, at the various uh, contact points on these websites that you can download. You can also send me an email at waradrevpod at gmail.com. And of course, I do have the Twitter account as well. The DMs there are open if you'd like to send the, uh, if, you know, questions there, or you can just at me on the website. So uh, thank you, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.